0: All right. Thanks to the choir. Thanks to the worship team this morning. Thank you for your participation in worship. It's a blessing to gather in this way and and sing together in these familiar songs mixed with some of these new songs. Uh, it's just a real encouragement uh, to be here. It's encouraging to see so many people here uh, as well. And just as sort of a, a word of encouragement to you, I think next week, the uh, Sunday before Christmas, is likely. Uh, to be a a week with a lot of folks around. So be patient and help one another as you come in and and find seats, make space uh, for each other in this room as we'll get as many of you in here as we can. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew. So the first book in the New Testament will actually be in the first chapter of the New Testament this morning, Matthew chapter 1. This is week two of our Advent series, and in this series we are focusing on what the Christmas story means when it says that Christ came as our king. Mark started off last week by explaining from Matthew 1, he explained the king's royal lineage. So 42 generations, three sets of 14 begats connecting Jesus to the royal line of King David. And speaking of David, the story continues by mentioning the city of David. Bethlehem is the site of Christ's birth. It's a village where the Old Testament tells us a king would be born. Then the story continues with with wise men who show up to give honor to the king. And then you have King Herod who is threatened by the coming of this rival king. And then a wild-eyed herald breaks on the scene, John the Baptist telling the people that a king is coming and that a kingdom is at hand, and that's just in Matthew's first three chapters. And sandwiched between all the regalia of the first three chapters, you have eight verses that tell us how the king actually arrived. But first, look in your Bible in the middle of Matthew chapter 1, look at verse 16, where we sort of left off last week where you see the royal lineage of Jesus appear to stop, and it stops with the name Joseph. Joseph is said to be the son of a man named Jacob, but he is not said to be the father of Jesus. Rather, the text identifies him as the husband of Mary. So, the genealogy, all of the begats that we see in the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1, they come to a screeching halt with Joseph. And that's because Matthew has to stop his narrative to explain that this birth is unlike any birth that has occurred in human history. And speaking of births in human history, before I get into our passage in Matthew chapter 1, I want to just mention briefly the first birth in human history. It took place in Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis 1 and 2, something very significant takes place. God creates the universe on the list of significant things that could take place that might be near the top of significant things. And when you read the creation account, you see that the capstone of God's creation was man. Man. "...was man, which he brought forth from the dust of the earth, and then the woman he made from the side of man." Both man and woman said to be distinct in God's creation in that they are image bearers of their creator. But at the same time, neither Adam or Eve were actually born in the way that you and I were born. They were created, not born. And as you know, in Genesis chapter 3, a tragedy occurs. These two image bearers, they disobey God. They, they choose to sin against their creator, which brings all kinds of consequences upon them. Chief among those consequences, consequences, I should say, is separation from God. Yet at the same time, in the midst of that rebellion, in the midst of that judgment and, and that, that shame, God makes to them an astounding promise. In Genesis 3.15, God condemns the serpent that deceived Adam and Eve, and within that condemnation, God proclaims that through the seed of the woman, he will provide an offspring that will crush the head of the serpent and thus roll back the curse of sin. And so this is why, when when you get to the the birth there in Genesis chapter 4, Now, can you imagine what Eve was thinking as she gave birth the first time? No one had ever given birth before. There there were no nurses or or midwives or or older women there to to coach her up or reassure her. She's just having a baby. No epidural, no breathing techniques, no nothing. She, She has this baby boy, and when she gives birth, she names the boy Cain, essentially meaning here he is. And likely, what Eve is thinking is, here he is. Here's the one that would crush the head of the serpent. But as you read the Genesis account play out, Cain was not the one. Either was Abel Either was Seth, either was Noah, either was Abraham, either was Isaac or Jacob or Benjamin or Judah or or Joseph or Moses or or Joshua or David or or, or Solomon or any of those names in chapter one that you can't pronounce. None of them were the one. But as you get to our text for today, you, you see the promised one's arrival, and it's unlike any birth that has ever taken place. So, Matthew. Chapter one. I'll begin reading in verse 18. I'll read down to verse 25. "Inspired of the Holy Spirit," Matthew writes. "Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. Syndicated columnist Dave Barry, he says his most vivid childhood memory of Christmas was not opening presents, it was the annual nativity pageant at St. Stephen's Episcopal Church in Armonk, New York. Mrs. Elson was the director, and she would tell the children what role they would play based on their artistic abilities. For example, if you were short, you would get the role of an angel, (laughs) which involved gazing with adoration at the Christ child. Barry always liked to be a shepherd. Shepherds got to carry a stick, and while they waited for like an hour in a small closet backstage, they would whack each other with these sticks. He says, after a couple of years as a shepherd, you usually did a stint as a three king. That was not nearly as good a role because you had to lug around the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. They were in Mrs. Elson's antique containers, so something terrible would happen to you if you dropped them. Nevertheless, being a three king was way better than being Joseph. No self respecting boy wanted to be Joseph. Joseph had to hang around with Mary, who was played by a girl. You had to wait backstage with this girl and walk in with this girl. Needless to say, you felt like a total nerd, which was not helped by the fact that the shepherds and the three kings were constantly suggesting that you really liked this girl. So during the pageant, Joseph tended to maintain the maximum allowable distance from Mary, as though she were carrying some kind of fatal bacteria, Dave Berry writes. But he's on to something there. You know, nobody wants to be Joseph. He's so quickly forgotten in this story. In fact, in Matthew and Luke, where, where the New Testament birth narratives are found, Joseph doesn't say a single word. He's silent. And yet here in Matthew we have the birth narrative from Joseph's perspective. Luke is Mary's perspective, which explains all the details. Women are often more colorful storytellers than men, particularly when it comes to something like a birth. But in Matthew, Jesus is born. You know, in Luke, there's not only an angel that shows up to explain things to Mary, but but there's a baby shower with cousin Elizabeth. There's a, there's a beautiful uh, song that Mary writes and sings. There's a Roman census. There's a journey. There's Bethlehem filled with people. There's no room in the inn. There are shepherds and a heavenly host. And, and, of course, there's a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. But not in Matthew. Matthew is the birth according to Joseph. And in Matthew, we have four aspects To the arrival of Jesus. A miracle, a misunderstanding, a messenger, and then a marriage. That's our outline for today. Let's look at point one a miracle. Verse 18 starts by saying, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. And that word for birth, it means Genesis or or, or origin. And what this is not saying. Is that this is the beginning of the second person of the Trinity, the Son? No. The, the Son is co equal and co eternal with the Father. He's the second person of the triune God. He is without beginning. Verse 18 is not proclaiming the origin of the Son. What it's proclaiming is the beginning of, or, or the genesis of, the God man, Jesus Christ, who is God's Son. Who is an eternal member of the triune God, but his incarnation, his taking on flesh, that had a beginning. And that's what's being explained in these verses that follow. And let me say this, this miracle, this is cloaked in all manner of mystery. This is philosophically dense material. How exactly God became man was the primary theological discussion in the early church. If you know your church history, you know that the 4th the century was the high watermark for the, for the swirling controversy concerning the nature of Jesus Christ. There was a popular Alexandrian bishop named Arius. And Arius taught that Jesus Christ's nature or his substance was only similar to the Father. So in Arius' mind, in his teaching, Jesus existed before creation and was not greater than creation, uh, excuse me, and was greater than creation, but was himself a created being. So in Arius' teaching, he was not, Jesus was not equal to the Father and therefore not actually divine. And there were many who embraced this teaching as sort of a show of intellectualism And it was known as Arianism. And so the first major council, the first of the major church councils in the 4th century, the Council of Nicaea, took place in 325 AD, which produced what we refer to as the Nicene Creed. And it was convened to refute this teaching from Arius and to crystallize the church's doctrine on the nature of Jesus Christ. And so just to connect this with the Christmas story even further, tradition holds that St. Nicholas, so jolly old St. Nick, he was a bishop in Turkey. He was present at the Council of Nicaea, and at one point he, he rose to his feet in the midst of this, meet, of, of this meeting. He walks over to Arius, and he slaps him in the face. That's how serious they took this. Jolly old St. Nick, the spirit of Christmas, right? Punching heretics, But the real theological hero of the day was a 29-year-old named Athanasius. One historian writes that almost single-handedly, Athanasius saved the church from pagan intellectualism. The Athanasian Creed, a document that's named for him, it declared this, It is necessary to eternal salvation that one should also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The right faith is that we should believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is equally both God and man. One way we say it is 100% God, 100% man. That's a teaching called hypostasis. Or perhaps you've heard the term hypostatic union. It, hypostatic union, it, it sounds fancy in English. It would actually make a great band name, Hypostatic Union. You can see that on a poster but it's a simple term. Hypostatic means personal, so the hypostatic union is the personal union of Jesus' two natures. Jesus has two complete natures, one fully human, one fully divine. Jesus is not two persons, he is one person. The hypostatic union is the joining of the divine and the human in the one person person of Jesus. And though I'm speaking matter-of-factly, there there is a high degree of mystery to all this. And it gets thicker as verse 18 continues. It says, When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, notice Mary is his mother, but Joseph is not said to be his father. Before they came together, she was found to be with with child from the Holy Spirit. So, So Christmas is so much more than sentimental. It is profoundly doctrinal. And the doctrinal pillar most associated with the Christmas story is the virgin birth. But as you look at this, in reality, what we read about here more specifically is a virgin conception. There's there's nothing too unique recorded about the birth. It is the conception that is so utterly miraculous. And and don't ask me to, to explain the scientific details of the conception, because I don't know them. Scripture doesn't explain them. I don't plan on a biology lesson this morning. But I will say that in some originating way, an egg from Mary was used in concert with the Holy Spirit to conceive a child which resulted in a pregnant Mary. It's her child. She's not just a test tube in which divinity is placed within or merely a a, a conduit by which Jesus will pass through. This is going to be a baby, a, a human baby, her baby, that is also God incarnate, that is also the image of the invisible God, God's eternal, only begotten Son. Scripture gives him a name, Jesus. And you know what? For a lot of people, what I just said there for the last 45 seconds, that's just too much. That, that is too rich. It's too miraculous, too impossible to, to explain to either a skeptical neighbor or a scientific mind. It's too much. But in Luke's account of this, the, the specific statement made by the angel who revealed the news to Mary, when Mary was telling him, hey, this is too much, The statement the angel makes to Mary is, with God, nothing is impossible. And so we are to regard the conception and birth of our Lord Jesus, we're to call it a miracle, because that's what it is. Heaven recognizes that it's a miracle. We too should recognize this is a miracle. But you know what? The, The progressive thinker, he takes issue with miracles, doesn't he? In 1904, Thomas Jefferson He sat down in the White House with with two identical copies of the New Testament and a straight-edge razor. And over the course of a few nights, he made quick work of cutting and pasting his own Bible. It was a slim volume that he called The Philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth. And after slicing away every page that, Jesus, uh, that suggested that Jesus was divine in his nature, Jefferson had a Jesus who was no more and no less than a good ethical guide. In commenting on the virgin birth, Jefferson said, The day will come when the mystical generation of Jesus by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin will be classified with the fables. You know, Thomas Jefferson may deserve respect and honor for certain achievements, but on this, he's just wrong. I'm in full agreement with Dr. Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary. He says, Those who would deny the virgin birth reject the authority of Scripture, undermine the very foundation of the gospel, and have no way of explaining the deity of Christ. With it, the gospel stands or falls. No virgin conception, no Christianity. Because there is an upshot, there is a trickle down effect. Listen to Peter Lewis. Peter Lewis points out that by means of the virgin birth, Christ enters the world guiltless of the sin of Adam. He becomes the the beginning of a new humanity, the, the restoration of the human race, because he is born of Mary, or excuse me, the restoration of the human race. That's because he's born of the Holy Spirit. Because he's born of Mary, he is truly human. Because he is conceived of the Holy Spirit, he is free from the inherited guilt handed down from Adam. Thus, he is fully able to stand in our place, taking our guilt, our shame, our punishment. He could pay for our sins precisely because he had no sin and no guilt of his own. So what you believe about the conception or the birth plays into what you believe about the cross and your redemption. TV personality, Larry King, he's asked a lot of people a lot of questions over the years. But Larry King was once asked this question. He was asked, if you could select any one person across all of history to interview, who would it be? King's answer was that he would like to interview Jesus Christ. And when the questioner followed with, and what would you like to ask him? King replied, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. You see, Larry King, he gets it. This truth is a watershed. To acknowledge it requires you to swallow whole all of Christian truth. The entire biblical worldview is to be adopted right here. And so it's no wonder people reject it. We'll be a little bit more on this as we move along. Move to the second point there in your notes. A misunderstanding. Verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Okay, here here it's helpful to explain how marriages worked in first century Judaism. There were three stages to the marriage process. Stage one was typically an arrangement. So if I have a daughter and you have a son, when they're quite uh, quite young, we would arrange a marriage between them. They may not like it. They may not even know about it. doesn't matter. We agree to it. Perhaps a dowry is paid and the plan is set in motion that they will one day marry. That's stage one. Stage two, some years later, a ceremony is held. Vows would be taken. Promises would be made. And at, at this point, the, the couple was what they called betrothed. Think of that as a very intense engagement. To to break the betrothal would require a divorce, and at this point, the man was referred to as the woman's husband, and the woman was called the man's wife. They would not, however, begin living together. They would, for about a year, pledge themselves to purity and await that final consummating stage of their marriage relationship, which is stage three consummation. Once the betrothal period is over, the marriage would be consummated. They would then build a life together. They would start a family and live happily ever after. And so this news about Mary, this hits Joseph during the second stage, during the betrothal. So when when the purity of the relationship is being tested, someone has appeared to fail the test. Mary's with child. Now, now, can can you imagine the hurt and the bewilderment that Joseph is feeling? Think about it this way. Nazareth is not a large village. In the first century, no more than probably 500 people lived there. And why I say that is because there were probably not a lot of fish in the sea, we might say. And with marriage arrangements typically starting when kids were quite young, Joseph is probably thinking that all of his prospects for marriage, they are now gone. The text calls him a righteous man, and no doubt he wanted a righteous wife. So for Mary to be pregnant, this is a social and spiritual disaster for Joseph. But he he loved Mary, clearly he did, because he did not seek to have her shamed publicly, she could have even been stoned to death if certain authorities were alerted to the situation. But no, he purposes to divorce her quietly. That's his, that's his plan. It's hard, but it keeps Mary from disgrace and from shame. Now to verses 20 through 23, the next point there in your notes, a messenger. This messenger is an angel that appears to Joseph in a dream. The word angel actually means messenger. Messenger. And this messenger presents two direct commands to Joseph. The first is do not fear. Do not fear. And with this angelic command, we have really the only similarity between Matthew and Luke's account of the birth of Jesus. In Luke 1, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, and as Mary is greatly troubled, Gabriel says to her, Don't be afraid. Don't fear. And so Joseph, too, is told to not be afraid. But pay attention here. This command is explicit. The angel is not saying, do not fear that a celestial being knows your name, as crazy and as amazing as that might be. But look closely at verse 20. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Marry her, Joseph. Don't be afraid to go through with it. She's pregnant by means of the Holy Spirit. And and if Joseph marries her, everybody in this shame and honor-based society, they'll they'll do the math and they'll know that the months don't add up. Married in June, baby in November. Hmm. This this marriage is going to lead to to shame and exclusion and social rejection. If he goes through with this, they're going to be second-class citizens their entire lives. But the command is marry her. Don't be afraid. And here's where you can start taking some of this message home with you. Here's where you can start applying some of this. Think about it this way. If Jesus Christ comes into your life, you are no longer in control of your reputation. You you can kiss the world's respect and praise and accolades goodbye. The lesson here for us is having Jesus in your life, it it takes bravery, it takes courage to face the world's scorn. Because you know as well as I do, when when, when Joseph follows through with this marriage, all of his friends and family are going to say to him, "Either, either you got pregnant before you were married, or she was unfaithful to you. And you can just imagine Joseph trying to to tell them the truth. What you see, guys, angels appeared to both of us, and and, and she actually became pregnant by means of the Holy Spirit, and, and there was a lot going on, and this is how it all played out. Imagine the laughter. Imagine the mocking and the condescension. From this point forward, Joseph will always be seen as either crazy or naive. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, that's what the world believes about us. Bless your heart bless your heart, you really believe all of this about Mary and Joseph and Bethlehem and the three wise men, all of this Christmas stuff, this really means something to you. Yeah, I'm staking my life on it. The other command the angel gives Joseph in his dream is found in verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus. The angel tells Joseph what he's to name the child, and in that patriarchal culture, what you have to know is that it was the father's right and privilege to name his child. He, he had co- complete rights to this. It was, a, it was a sign of control over his family. But the angel, however, takes that away, partly as a sign to Joseph that the boy was actually the son of God. So God the father reserved the right to name him. But in a bigger sense, the, the naming rights are taken away to underscore who the child is to be and what he has come to do. The name Jesus means Savior. It's the Hebrew Yeshua or Joshua translated into English. It means Savior, and his name must be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And some say, wait, wait, wait. I thought Jesus came to empower us and and, and love us. Well, that, that might come with it, but his mission was to die for us. He was to go to the cross for us. It was, remember, to crush the head of the serpent. To roll back the curse and reconcile sinners to the holy God of the universe. The hopes of all the generations are are about to be realized in this boy who is to be born. His name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And not only that. Look at the Old Testament prophecy that the angel points Joseph to here. The angel quotes Isaiah 7.14. This is a a prophetic word recorded 700 years earlier. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So it would have been astonishing enough for the Son of God to become human and and simply live temporarily among us. Maybe do some miracles, perhaps leave us a set of moral teachings. But his designs are infinitely greater than just that. From this verse, we see that the purpose of the incarnation is for us to have a relationship with him for us to be with him and him to be with us. In Jesus, the ineffable, unapproachable God became a human being who can be known and loved. And you know what? This does not stun us as much as it should. And I say that because think about the Old Testament. Anytime anyone drew near to God in the Old Testament, it was completely terrifying. God appears to Abraham as a smoking furnace. He appears to Israel as a a pillar of fire. He shows himself to Job as a tornado. When Moses asked to see God's face, Moses was told that it would kill him. Can you imagine if Moses were to hear the message of Christmas? Christmas. The word became flesh and and made his dwelling among us, that that we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, that Jesus is God with us. Moses would cry out, do you you realize what this means? Do you realize what this means, that that through Jesus you can meet God? You, You can know him personally, and without terror, he can come into your life. I'm reminded of John Wesley, the great theologian, John Wesley. At the end of his life, as he lay on his deathbed, moments before dying, he rises up and he says, and best of all, God with us. Those were his final words before he passed. And best of all, God with us. When God showed up in Jesus Christ, he was not a pillar of fire, nor was he a tornado. He was a baby. Why would God come in the form of a baby? Why would he come as an infant rather than a whirlwind? Because he came not to bring judgment, he came to bear it. He came to pay the penalty for our sins. He came to be approachable, to take away the barrier between humanity and God. He came to free us, to relieve us. Jesus is God with us. a story from Paul Harvey. I love Paul Harvey. He reminds me of my dad, driving around with my dad listening to his radio show. Paul Harvey tells of a man who who did not believe that God had taken human flesh in the the person of Jesus. He was a kind and decent family man, but he was skeptical skeptical about the message of Christmas, and, and he couldn't pretend otherwise. So on Christmas Eve, he told his wife that he was not going to church with her and the children because he just couldn't believe and so they went without him shortly after the family left snow began to fall and as he sat in his fireside chair reading the paper he he was startled by a a thudding sound against the house then another then another at first he thought someone must be throwing snowballs against the living room window but when he went to investigate he found a flock of birds huddled miserably in the snow They'd been caught in the storm and in a desperate search for shelter, had been trying to fly through his window. He didn't want to leave the poor creatures there to freeze. He, he, he thought of the barn where his children stabled their pony. So he put on his coat and his boots and he, he tromped through the deepening snow to the barn. He opened the door wide and turned on the lights, but the birds didn't come in. He went back to the house, he got some breadcrumbs and and sprinkled a path to the barn, but but the cold creatures ignored the food and and continued to flop around helplessly in the snow. He spent time trying to catch them and and shoo them into the barn, but they scattered in every direction, frightened by his well-meaning actions. As he puzzled over how he could help save these frightened creatures from sure death, the thought struck him. If only I could become a bird and speak their language, then I could show them the way to safety. At that moment, the bells from the church rang out through the silent falling snow, bells that were heralding the birth of the savior, and the message of Christmas suddenly made sense. And at that point, he dropped his knees to his knees in the snow and pleaded for God's mercy. See God is not distant. He, he did not stay separate from us. He drew near to us. He, he came to us. You, you were so bad off that, that God had to come and, and, and die for you. You are so loved that God came and died for you. Think about that. Let's just finish quickly with the last point a marriage. We know nothing of Joseph's emotional reaction to this dream. We can only imagine how great his feelings of relief and amazement and even gratitude must have been. Not only would he be able to take Mary as his wife with honor and righteousness, but he would be the adopted father of the Son of God. And when you think about it, it is un- or excuse me inconceivable to think that God would entrust his son into a family where... The father was not committed and, and, and faithful to him. But we know little else of Joseph. Everything we do know centers around Jesus. He took Jesus to the temple to be dedicated there in Luke 2. He fled to Egypt to, to protect Jesus from Herod in Matthew chapter 2. Sometime later, he would return, taking a 12 year old Jesus to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. We have no idea when he died. And after the opening scenes in the Gospels, he's never again again mentioned. But we do know that Joseph submissively and obediently follows through with everything the angel tells him to do. The text tells us that he took Mary to be his wife. He knew her not until she had given birth, which is a detail intending to make the virgin birth indisputable. And what's also implied is that normal marital relations existed after the birth. The fact that Jesus' brothers and sisters are spoken of numerous times in the gospel accounts proves that Mary did not remain a a virgin perpetually, as some traditions try and claim. But then, as a final act of obedience, Joseph follows through in naming the son, names him Jesus. Jesus. Think about the names that are special to you. The name of your mother or your father. The name of your kids or your your grandkids. Maybe your husband's name or or your wife's name. There, There are names that matter a great deal to me. But there is a name that is above every name. I'm reminded of a song. Perhaps you've heard it. I'm not going to sing it. I don't know. I'll, I'll just read the lyrics. It says, He did not come to judge the world. He did not come to blame. He did not only come to seek. It was to save He came. And when we call Him Savior... And when we call him Savior, and when we call him Savior, we call him by his name. You know, some people believe deep down that Jesus only came to blame. And it is true, one day he will judge the world in righteousness. But when he came into the world through the virgin womb of Mary, when the baby was laid in a manger at Bethlehem, he did not come to condemn, he came to save. And that's why he was named Jesus. I'm sure very few of you here have never said the name Jesus. But my question as we close is this. Have you ever called him Savior? Have you ever said something like this to him? Lord Jesus Christ, I trust you as my my Savior. You have taken my guilt. You've taken my shame on your shoulders. You love me. Your grace and your pardon were for me, and they are all that I need. Do you call him by that name? How much does the name Jesus mean to you? Enough for you to yield your whole life to him? Enough for you to yield your whole life to him? Because if the virgin birth is true, then that's really the only legitimate response, is it not? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you in praise and adoration for who you reveal yourself to be, how you reveal your redeeming plan, your plan to come to us and save us by a demonstration of just infinite love and grace. Lord, we're here today, people that are grateful for your mercy. We're here today, people who are celebrating the the coming of your Son. And Lord, I I pray that, that that reality, that truth, and all that it entails that it would stun us today. That you would drive the details of the incarnation and all that all that, that implies. You would, you would drive that deep into our hearts and minds today. That you would illuminate this word here in Scripture for us so that we can more deeply understand what you're teaching us. Lord, I do thank you for this time and this place and this people. I pray that as they leave here today, they would be heralds of this message. That they would endure with courage the scorn from people who would say that this is impossible. But you know, but we know that with you, God, it is possible. All things are possible. We thank you and we submit this day to the lordship of our Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand for our benediction. And just again, let you know, if you are a guest with us today, uh, we're excited that you're here. You're really our honored guest. And and what we would like um, for you to do as you make your way out, there's a welcome center at the end of this corridor. Stop by there, get some information about Faith Bible Church. We'll gather a little information on you, be able to follow up with you uh, as these days move along, see how we can minister to you during this Christmas season. If you have a need this morning, if you'd like to pray with an elder or visit uh, with someone in leadership uh, here at the church, there will be some men uh, down front that would be happy to meet with you. Our benediction is from the passage that we have been studying this morning. I want to call back to that verse in Isaiah chapter 7, where it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Go in his presence this morning. You're dismissed.